0: Welcome to the Determined Truth Podcast. I want the truth! You can't handle the truth! Where we aim to explore questions of truth, the scriptures, and what it means for the church today. Here's your host, Rob Dalrymple. Hi, this is Rob Dalrymple, and I want to welcome you to the Determined Truth Podcast. Today's podcast is from an introductory course on how to interpret the Bible that I presented in 2012. If you'd like the lecture notes to follow along with this presentation... I encourage you to log into my website, DeterminedTruth.wordpress.com. Click on the link on the left side of the page titled Alphabetical Listing of All Classes. And then find the class, Biblical Interpretation. That will take you to the page with all the audio recordings as well as a, a substantial set of notes to help guide you through this course. If you like these podcasts, please subscribe and let others know as well. Thanks for tuning in, and here's our study on how to interpret the Bible. Ultimately then, what we, what we found, what we're finding out then, is that these parables of 16 are the response to the fact that chapter 15, verse 1, the tax gatherers and sinners, remember a tax gatherer is a Jew who works for the Romans, right? They've gone to work for the Romans, and they've made a lot of money in doing so, of course, by by abusing people at the expense of the poor, right? Stealing, ultimately, that's you know, any extra you, take, you collect is yours, so to speak. So uh, they did these things. But they're Jewish uh, uh, people. Uh, and then sinners is just a generic category that includes the, the poor, the lepers, the lame, the outcasts, etc., right? Those who don't bring you honor. Might be another way of saying it. All right. Uh, they were coming to him to listen to him. And the ph- uh, Pharisees and scribes, and again, the scribes are professional... Uh, um, uh, lawyers, sometimes they'll be called l- lawyers, uh, because they were experts in the law. The, it's the Old Testament religious law. Was, what they were scribes of is the scriptures. They wrote it down. And they copied it. And because they copied it so often they became known as the experts in the law. If you want to know what the written law says, we know. Uh, th- therefore this the formal school. Now, not all scribes are Pharisees. All right? um, so, so, some of these guys may or may not have been Pharisees. Pharisees were the religious elite and the aristocrat, uh, not the aristocratic, but the, uh, the, uh, um, the, the ones who are scrupulously following the details of the law and well-known and respected and revered and honored for their religious uh, scruples. Okay? And they're saying, this man receives sinners and he eats with them. Right? And he tells them this parable. Okay. Now, there are three parables. I'll follow. Any questions, comments? No? We're good? All right. The first one is uh, what man among you if he has 100 sheep and has lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open pasture and go after the one which is lost until he finds it. Right? By the way, in Greek, this is one long question, and the answer to the question is, there's no one among you that would do this. I'm sorry, say it again. That everyone among you would do that. Right? You would all do that. If you lost one sheep, you would pen the other 99 up or leave them in an open pasture where you know they're safe and protected, and you'd go off and find that lost sheep. There we go. So when he founds it, he lays it on his shoulders because the lost sheep all by itself won't go anywhere. So you have to carry it. It, just, it won't move. All right? um, it, it has to follow something. Um, so he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. When he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, and he says, Rejoice with me! I have found my sheep which was lost. He has just now answered their question. Why do you eat with tax gatherers and sinners? They're lost, but I found them. They strayed, and I brought them back. Now it goes on. I tell you the same way there will be more joy in heaven over the one sinner who repents and over the 99 uh, persons who need no repentance. Or, what woman... Now, uh, women would often wear their dowry as a headband uh, uh, on their head with uh, coins. And the reason for that is because if she is divorced, all she gets to take with her is what she's wearing. So if she wears her dowry, her the coins, the money, she gets to keep that. Okay? So you can imagine if she's lost one of these 10 coins. So here, here we go. She has 10 silver coins and she loses one. Does she not light a lamp and sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it? The answer, of course, is yes, she does. When she founds it, when she found, has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin which I had lost. In the same way, I tell you, there's joy in the presence of the, of, uh, uh, the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Right? Same moral of the story. Now, notice also, by the way, that there's a little bit of movement in the, in the parables. The first parable had a hundred, and only one was lost. The second parable has ten, and one is lost. The third one has two and one is lost. Okay? So here we go, famous parable. Most of us know it pretty well. Um, Even if we've never tried to memorize it, I bet we could pretty much recite it pretty well uh, here. He said, A certain man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. He divided his wealth between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered everything together and went on a journey into a distant country. And there he squandered his estate with loose living. Now, when he had spent everything, a severe famine occurred in that country, and he began to be in need. And he went out and attached himself to one of the citizens of that country, and he sent him into the fields to feed the swine. He was longing to fill his stomach with the pods that the swine were eating, and no one was giving anything to him. But when he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread, but I am dying here with hunger? I will get up and go to my father and I'll say, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. And he got up and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion for him and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And it says, And the father uh, said to his slaves, Quickly, Bring out the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf, kill it, let us eat and be merry. The son of mine was dead and has come to life again. He was lost and has been found. And they began to be merry. Now his older son was in the field. And when he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing. And he summoned one of the servants and began inquiring what these things might be. And he said to him, your brother has come back and your father has killed the fattened calf. Because he's received him back safe and sound. But he became angry, was not willing to go in. And his father came out and began entreating him. But he answered and said to his father, Look, for so many years I've been serving you and have never neglected a command of yours, and yet you have never given me a kid that I might be married with my friends. But when this son of yours, who has devoured your wealth with harlots, you killed the fattened calf for him, your son of yours came. And he said, My child you've always been with me and all that I have uh, and all that is mine is yours but we had to rejoice we had to be merry and, and rejoice this brother of yours was dead and has begun to live and was lost and has been found alright now here we go this man eats receives sinners and eats with them what's Jesus' answer to that, to that statement or question ultimately what's the answer are you rejoicing over the lost I had to. I had to. Right? Look at the last verse. When this brother of yours was dead and has begun to live and was lost and was found, we had to be merry and rejoice. I have no choice. I have to be merry and rejoice. There's your answer. Now, what else do you notice in this parable here? Some of the things that we've already talked about a little bit that might help us understand this parable more and more as we go also. What are some things here? Let's, we're, we're practicing the skill of interpreting the Bible. So what kind of questions do we want to answer or ask? Or what do we need to know? Or name something that you know, hey, this might help illuminate the parable a little bit more. And again, we'll, we'll talk about parables in a number of weeks. But Bill? Yeah. Yeah. When do you receive your inheritance? When your dad dies, dad, I want my share of the estate, is the same as saying, dad, I wish you were dead. Now, help me out here, what is, how's that going to go across? How's that going to go across in our culture? Right? How's that going to go across in that culture? What is it about that culture that makes this even worse than maybe our culture? I'm not sure it's necessarily much worse, but it is. It's the honor and shame. It's the honor and shame. I mean, that's this shameful, disrespectful thing you could possibly ever even imagine, let alone say. Right? What does the Father do? He obliges. Now, by the way, did you notice? Give me my share of the date uh, that, that falls to me, verse uh, 12. Look what, look what the end of verse 12 says. You might not have noticed this before. And he divided his estate among them. The older brother got his share also. He divided it. Now, by the way, the older brother gets two. Okay, The oldest son gets a double share. So if there's five kids, you know, you split it six ways, basically, because the, old, the oldest one gets two, and the other ones each get one. Right? If there's only two sons, then the oldest gets a double share, so he gets two-thirds, and the youngest gets one-third. Right? The youngest, however, went off into a distant country and squandered it away. The oldest, which makes you wonder, by the way, I think this may be reading the parable too strongly, but, but technically speaking then, and again, details of a parable are just, are just there to help accent the story, but if this were a true story, the fattened calf belonged to the older brother. Right? It's the older brother's calf, because, that's, because the younger brother got all his stuff and squandered it. Everything that's left is the older brothers. So, but I don't know that that's, that's not really the, I don't think it's relevant to the interpretation of the parable. But all right, what else? Help me out. One, one second, here we go. Yes, but, and, and I want to expand on this, though. I want to expand, I want to expand on that. All right, so I'll, I'll hold off a little bit. Yes, uh, E.J. The, the, older, the older, he didn't have to ask for his inheritance, but the only way the father could divide the wealth up is he had to divide the wealth up. The only way he can give the younger son his share of the estate is to divide the, the estate up. This is yours. This is yours. Therefore, once the younger son got his share, everything that's left is the older's. But he didn't. He didn't. The, older son, the, older, the older brother didn't. It was the younger one that did. Um, and he, and, uh, but by definition, once the younger one gets his share of the estate, everything that's left is the older's. Uh, he gets it. He divided his wealth among them. All right. So, help me with the honor and shame background here. Yeah, um, go ahead. Ah, oh, that's where I'm going to go. Okay, it, it is, exactly. But, so, hold on. I'm gonna, that's where I want to take us. Uh, it's a parable. It's a parable, so I don't know that we're even meant to answer the question. Uh, I know it's, it, it, a parable is not a historically, it, it's just, it's, a, it's, it's made up story that illustrates a point, right? It's not a true historical actual account where the question of how did he know that, that wouldn't have been asked because this isn't a, 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 an actual historical event. Jesus isn't lying, by the way. I've heard people say, oh, parables are true stories because if they're not true stories, Jesus is lying. It's like, okay, once upon a time, I just became a liar, you know, right? No, no one expects the story to be a true actual historical event. All right, help me with honor and shame. Help, yes. No, it's it's the Father never gave me a banquet in my honor. That's I the point. Happen. There's no occasion to give you a banquet. Right. That's right, that's right. The son stayed home, but uh, uh, the same was he didn't stay home for the the love of the father. That's that's, that's absolutely case. Well, and that's where we're going to go tonight after we're done with this. Uh, The question is, how do we determine what's fact and what's story, whatever? And the answer is genre, all right? So we have to define genre and then understand what the biblical genres are and how they work and kind of work through that. So, and there's some... Obviously, there's some looseness, even the genre, right? Uh, uh, even in English, you know, it's hard to tell. Uh, and we'll talk more about that. All right, yes. That's right. Okay, so so honor and shame is huge in the context of this parable. One example is that the son shames his father. Brought absolute disgrace on the family, because it's obviously going to be known, culturally speaking, what just happened. He leaves, all right, now the best thing that that son can now do is remain gone. When he comes back, he brings the shame back with him. Right? What does the father do? He runs out to meet him. In fact, it says, "Yeah, he, he, he gives him honor, uh, and it says, uh, he got up and came to his father, but he was a long way off. his father, saw him, felt compassion for him, and ran and embraced him. Verse 20. A man does not run. In this culture... Because it's shameful. Because when you run, what do you do? You have to gird up your loins, right? You've got a, you know, a, a robe on, basically, right? In order to run, you have to tuck that robe in your undergarment. And you're showing your leg. Well, that's disgraceful. Furthermore, I'm so significant, you can wait for me. I'm not going to run, because that means, like, you know, I feel bad that you're waiting. No, no, I, I'm, I'm worthy. You can wait. All right. So a man doesn't run in that culture. So, not only is the man, the father, running, he's running to embrace a son that's bringing shame back into the fold. Yes, that's right. And let's honor this, let's, let's honor this son. That's right. Uh, let's honor him. And of course, uh, um, uh, let's bring out the fattened calf, kill it, and eat it. And I mean, this is a massive, very, very expensive feast. 35 or more people would, would feast off a fattened calf of, uh, of this nature. Okay, and the, now there's a lot more here, right? There's a lot more. Um, uh, the, the son goes off into a distant, cult- uh, distant country. Where's he lying with? Or what's he lying with? Pigs. Right? What's that tell you? Yeah, the, it's Jew. He, he's a Jew. He's a Jew. So he's obviously in a Gentile country, right? Amongst the Gentiles. And now he's not even of the, of the level of the pigs, which is the dirtiest, most unclean animal there even is. Uh, uh, these types of things. No, the father was not concerned about the honor and shame. That's right. And, and, the, and that answers why the parable is so appropriate, right? If the father is not concerned about the honor and shame, why are you eating with tax gatherers and sinners? Because they were lost and they're found. I don't care if they bring shame into my banquet, right? They don't bring shame into my banquet. That's just something that you've manufactured in your culture, in your society. Right? I've esteemed them. I've honored them. All right. There's a lot more. Here we go. Uh, now, what I started to talk about last week was that uh, um, that story. Yeah, please. Oh, exactly. Yeah, absolutely. The, and we're gonna we're gonna talk about that in a sec. Yeah, the statement of the repentance. Exactly. Okay. So here we go. What I talked about last week was that you can describe stories, you know, as this I don't know bell curve, whatever you want to call it, and that uh, what you basically have is uh, you know the setting right? The sto- uh, all stories start off with a setting, and, you know, there's a king and a queen, and they're so happily married, and they give birth to this beautiful child that's a wonderful girl, and it's so- oh, she's going to be a princess, and all that great stuff. There's a setting. Okay. Then there's some incident that is a problem, right? Oh, all of a sudden now, the evil witch casts a spell on the daughter, and the daughter's been held captive in, you know, uh, in some uh, um, dungeon, or not dungeon, but some tower somewhere else. Okay, right. So, there's a setting. Um, Now what happens as the story continues? Things get worse, right? And it gets worse and worse until eventually uh, we get to some type of a climax, right? Where things in the story they just can't get worse. The problem is irresolvable. Everything looks hopeless. There's just no way it's going to be resolved. And then all of a sudden, oh, guess what? There's a there's a, a resolution. So I'll call that resolution. Okay. So uh, this here is the, I'll, I'll call this the problem that starts us up on the curve. Um, things get worse, worse, worse. The, the problem reaches a climax. Then there's a resolution, and then maybe even some type of resolution after that where things get even better, and, you know, a, an initial resolution, and maybe uh, a, another resolution after that where everything's, everything's resolved, and, uh, and then we have uh, the final outcome. They all live happily ever after, right? That's, that would be the outcome. All right. This is the nature of stories, and the Bible follows this type of a curve also. The biblical story, the story of redemption. All right now, the biblical story, of course, you know, you got creation, uh, then you got the fall. Adam and Eve are kicked out of the garden. Things get worse and worse and worse because uh, he had to flood the world. Um, you know, you can put several different types of grids on this particular story. Um, Babel didn't work, uh, so he, you know, he, uh, uh, the flood didn't work, so Babel comes in. It gets, re- it gets worse. Ah, then God calls Abraham. Oh, how's this going to work? And eventually, of course, the resolution is Christ, right? Uh, God builds his kingdom through the church. Might be the, 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 the continuing resolution. And then the New Jerusalem, they all live happily ever after. Okay. Um, when, you, when you watch this story of the, of the parable of the prodigal son, and um, uh, uh, what's the guy's name? Tim Keller wrote a book called The Prodigal God. You guys, how many of you read The Prodigal God? Well worth the read. Easy read, not a hard one at all. Well worth the read. He says this parable is not named appropriately. A prodigal means someone who lavishes excessively. And the prodigal son is, the son lavishes excessively, wastes all and squanders all the wealth. Well, Keller argues it's God who lavishes excessively, because the, it's the father who shows, throws the banquet for the son excessively, well beyond what he should do, and it's, it's the God. It's God who's the who's the true prodigal here, all right. Um, what's interesting then is here's a man had two sons. That's your setting, right? One of the sons comes up and says, "Dad, I wish you were dead, right? I want my share of the estate." Uh oh, what's going to happen? The father does it. What happens? The son goes off, but then he squanders the wealth, right? And now all of a sudden he's he's lying with the pigs, and he can't even eat what the pigs eat, right? And it gets so bad, it's like, oh no. Uh, my father's hired hands are better off than I am. What am I going to do? And what happens? It reaches this climax, and the man says, I know what I'll do. Uh, it's verse 18. I'll go and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. Okay? So here's that climax. I'm going to go back. What's going to happen when he gets back? What's, is the dad going to receive him? Is he going to shun him? I mean, if he does what he should do, it ain't going to work. The father ain't going to take him in. He'll be stopped at the border. Sorry you're not welcome in this country. Go back wherever you came from, right? But what happens is the father runs out to meet him. He runs out and meets him. The father throws a banquet, this lavish banquet, and they all live happily ever. Oh, no. There's another. It's called an occasioning incident. There's another problem. The older brother comes in. In other words, we should be here on the story at the end. We're ready to have the they all live happily ever after. But then all of a sudden, there's another story that interjects. The older brother comes in. Uh no problem. Time out. Time out. Look at what this son did. Look at what I've done. Right? The father says. To, so there's there's conflict. The father then responds, "Oh, son, you know, uh, all that I have is yours." And You could have had all these things, but your brother was lost and has been found, right? And we had to rejoice and be merry. All that I have is, all that is mine is yours, but would you come in and join us in the banquet? Right? Notice, by the way, the, you know, honor and shame. The son, the older son won't go into the father. He makes the father come outside to him. That's shameful. You don't, hey, dad, come over here and talk to me. No, that's not the way it works, right? All right. So, now what happens? In other words, if you read verse 32, we had to be married and rejoice. This brother of yours was dead and has begun to live. He was lost and has been found. Now he was also saying to his disciples. And everyone's like, um, okay, what are we waiting for? We're waiting for the response of the older brother. What does he do? We've reached the climax in the story. But it's actually a climax in a second story, right? But there's no resolution. We don't know the end of the story. Which means what? Well, it means that the older brother is whom? The Pharisees. The father is Jesus. Jesus is saying, I'm eating with tax gatherers and sinners because I had to Are you going to come in and join us or not? The answer, the resolution is, just keep reading. Keep reading Luke's Gospel. And you're going to find out what their answer is. And what's their answer? Crucify them. They don't come into the story. They don't come into the the meal. Right? See what's happening? Very interesting telling of a story by Jesus leaving it at, a, at the climax without a resolution because the resolution is, it's actually illustrating a real story and I don't know the answer yet. I mean, he knows it, but we haven't experienced the answer yet. What's going to happen? All right. Now, there's one more big thing, however. All right. And that is this. I argued the first couple weeks now that a proper reading of the Bible means that we understand the history, we understand the culture, we have to understand the language, We have to know when this book was written, why it was written, to whom was it written, you know, what's the going on, what's his purpose, why, you know, everything we can know, the theological background, uh, um, uh, uh, against the backdrop of the ancient culture, things like that. We have to know all these things, right? All right. Of course, I think a lot of us are familiar with, you know, I'm going to examine a verse and the language of that verse and the words of that verse and do some maybe word studies, which I'll talk about in a few weeks because I hate word studies, Um, um. uh, I not personally hate them, but I think that they're they're more dangerous than they are useful, all right, In the hands of you know of of, uh, of the common uh, of the common interpreter, all right? And even sometimes the not so common interpreter, all right? Um, we do all these things, then we understand the that 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 verse in light of its paragraph, in light of its larger context of of the surrounding paragraphs, and then the surrounding chapters, and then in light of the whole book, all right? And then I have to understand that verse not only in light of the whole book, but in light of the whole Bible, all right? But I also argued that we have to do something else. And that is, we have to understand the Bible in light of Jesus. The whole story is pointing us to Christ in some way, shape, or form. It's about Christ. Right? Now, I'm going to add to that later on something else also. more than just about Christ. But we have to understand the story about Christ and what's happening. All right, now, let's, let's do this. Here we go. Let's take this same story right, of the parable of the prodigal son or the prodigal God, whatever you want to call it. And let's put the biblical story on top of it. Right? God calls at Abraham. Gives him the promised land. Right? Here you go, guys. Here's my law. Do these things and you'll be blessed. You'll have peace and prosperity in this land. If you don't obey, however, you're going to be cursed. I'm going to kick you out of this land. What's going to happen? No problem. They're God's chosen people. Everything's blessed, etc. Uh-oh, all of a sudden they start disobeying the law. Right? God brings prophets along. The prophets come along and say, uh, you guys better stop. If you don't stop disobeying the law, God's going to kick you out of the land. What happens? Eventually God says, okay, good, you're out of here. You're done. He kicks them out of the land. Sends them off into a distant country. Right? Um, there in that distant country, they reach a state of dire straits. The people of Israel, whether they're in Assyria or in Babylon, are going, what are we doing here? God, we can't receive any of the blessings of the covenant. We can't be blessed in any way, shape, or form because the blessings of the covenant are always attached to the land. However, the law is very clear. If you want to come back to the land, if you want to be restored back to the covenant and receive the blessings of the covenant, you must repent. The Father sends off His Son into a distant country. And in that distant country, the son says, I know what I'll do. I'll say, Father, I have sinned. He repents. What happens after he repents? He comes back. Question, what's going to happen when he comes back? Is the father going to take him or not? Answer, yes, the father receives him back into the family. And he receives the blessing. However, there remains another group within within the family of God. Those who weren't sent away. Those who remained the whole time. Those who have deemed themselves the faithful ones. And their answer is, we want to be blessed also. We want a banquet in our honor also. And the answer is, if you repent, then you can come in. If you don't repent, then you can't come in. This is unquestionably the theme of the gospel a sub theme of the gospel of Luke right which begins ultimately in with John the Baptist right repent because the kingdom of God is at hand this is Luke 3 repent the kingdom of God is at hand oh don't say to me that we have Abraham as our father because God can raise up from these stones children of Abraham that's the older brother I am a child of Abraham I've been here all along, I've been faithful to you, I've done everything you've ever asked. And the answer is, if you don't look after the poor, if you don't look after the sinners and the tax collectors, if you bar them from the kingdom of God, then you've missed the whole thing. What are you going to do? Are you going to join the banquet or not? It's the story of Israel. Being sent off in exile, but the only way you can come back in exile is to repent. Does that make sense? in other words, the parable illustrates this larger story of the children of Israel going off into a distant land and coming back, but the only way they can come back is through repentance alright, questions, comments remarks, thoughts alright, there's more here, by the way this parable reveals more alright, but we got it okay, let's move on and let's go to uh, our outline and our notes, Uh, I'm going to skip now um uh, I guess we're on page nine. Introduction to hermeneutics, genre. Genre means style of writing. It's all it means. It's a fancy word that we probably all hated when we were in English classes in school, right? Um, you know, I don't know about you guys, but I never did poetry. I still don't like poetry. I don't get poetry. The thing doesn't make any sense. It's like, how did you get that out of that stupid thing? That doesn't, I don't get it. All right. Some of you guys like are great with it, but not me. All right. Um, Give me the sports page. I'll be all right with that. But give me a poem. I don't get that. Joe Namath was a quarterback. Was was a quarterback. Was he? It ain't going to work. All right. Um, Here you go. So genre is a style of writing. And here's the best way to illustrate the significance of genre. All right? Winning and losing. Think of a newspaper. Winning and losing on the front page means something different than winning and losing on the sports page. Winning and losing in the obituaries means something different than winning or losing in the sports page. You don't watch Wile Coyote and the Roadrunner, and all of a sudden, Wile E. Coyote chasing the Roadrunner, and all of a sudden, beep, beep, and it goes boom, and Wile Coyote goes off a cliff. <laughs> I love that part. Right? Because it takes them forever to go, all right. Now that's like a several thousand foot drop, people. Now, how in the world, seconds later, is he chasing the roadrunner? It makes no sense at all. No kid thinks that way, though, do they, right? They get it, they understand. How in Tom and Jerry, which one's the cat? Tom, okay. His tail gets caught on fire, but in the next scene. His tail's perfectly healed. You know, we don't we know, we get it. It's a cartoon. Alright? If anybody would have fallen off a cliff that far, like you know, like, that that they would never have survived it, you know? All right. Every once in a while he comes up, you know, he's in crutches, and it's kind of funny. But all right. But all right. It's a cartoon. We get it. We know the genre. Right? If I were to say once upon a time, everybody knows what's gonna happen, right? Tell me what's gonna happen now. What's gonna be next? There'll be a prince or princess, there'll be an evil witch. The princess will be in in trouble, dire straits, and eventually will come along a handsome Prince Charming. Brad, Rob, we'll get up. Come on. There's one example. John Paul, come here. Okay. Here. Handsome Prince Charming, all right, will come along and they'll slay the evil dragon, right? The wicked dragon. The witch of witches, the wicked, at the last hour, moments before. The clock strikes 12, right? And she turns back into a pumpkin or whatever that stupid thing is all about. All right. And I didn't say stupid thing. I just, I meant, I meant that silly thing. Yeah, okay. Um, you get it. Here we go. And everyone's saved and they all live happily ever after. All right. Now, if I were to tell that, I tell a story like that, and we had someone coming in from a foreign country, all right? My buddy from Nigeria and, you know, some of his students from Nigeria coming in, and, and we start telling, you know, Hey, guys, once upon a time. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I start telling you this great story. Now, imagine somebody from another culture who doesn't know once upon a time. And they don't understand what's to, what, 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 and they're like, people believe this stuff? No way. That didn't happen. Right? Because they're taking the story as fact. Because they didn't understand that once upon a time was a catchphrase that indicated fairy tale. So, genre then sets the rules. Now, there's another important feature of genre, and that's this. So, we open up uh, 1 Kings, and in the 15th year, when so-and-so was the king, and -and such-and-such was in power, and -and so-and-so lives in such-and-such a city. Okay, this is historical. This is clearly describing history, right? We have to be careful... To assume that the way that they wrote history is the same way that we write history. Their standards of history might not be our standards of history. Right? One significant difference they were an oral culture. The ancient world was an oral culture. We got iPads. Right? You guys ever seen those Pulse Smart Pens? they're unbelievable they record everything that's said in the entire. they can hear everybody in the room like this mic can only pick up me and if, uh, you put one of these pens on the, on the desk and it picks up everything in the room they're perfect for students by the way because you can hear every question All right. and as you take notes it syncs your notes to the audio and then later on you're like oh I didn't get what the professor said right there just make a little note there All right. and then later on you go dink on the page in a certain spot and it plays back the audio of that exact spot all right, here's, all right, like, all right. So for us, with those standards, what are we? What are we concerned about? Exactness, preciseness. Right? If somebody's quoted in the newspaper, it's like, oh, that's not what I said. It's close enough, dude. No, no, no. In our modern day, it has to be word for word, verbatim. Right? So all the all the reporters, you know, they have they have tape players or whatever, or the pulse smart pens, so they can play back and get an exact quote. All right. That ain't going to happen in, in an oral culture. Compare Matthew, Mark, and Luke, who very commonly have the, the same story. All three Gospels will be telling you the same story. But the language is different. Why? Because in an oral culture, the language will vary up to 40%. And when we compare Matthew, Mark, and Luke, what do we find out? The stories vary by verbiage, by, by, by words, about 40%. So now what is important then is, not only do we have to know genre, but we have to know what that genre meant to that time and in that culture. Make sense? All right. So, uh, um, uh, let me give you a big picture now. The Old Testament historical cultural context uh, you, you might see referred to as uh, A-N-E. If you ever see this abbreviated, you're going to now know what it means. It stands for the Ancient Near East. The Ancient Near East. All right. So if you see A-N-E anywhere at all, it's referring to the ancient Near East, okay? Mesopotamia, Assyria, Babylon, Egypt. When we read Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, we compare it to the ancient Near East, okay? So in a couple weeks, uh, um, the, 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 the thing we'll start off class with, we'll, we'll look at, a, at an example in the law uh, of the Old Testament where basically if you fight a war and you win, you're victorious, all right? Um, and there's a, there's a good-looking dame, all right? Um, you're allowed to take her as your wife. Okay, You can bring her home, bring her as your wife. You can't do this, but you can do that. Okay? Now, after 30 days, if you don't like her, you can send her off, but you can't sell her. Okay. okay. I'm not sure I'm good with the, if you capture the beautiful dame in, you know, as booty for a war, you can keep her and marry her. Law, but what we have to do is we have to compare that law to the law of the ancient Near East and, and see well what, were there laws like that? And have you ever heard the law, uh, the Hammurami, Hammurabi, uh, Hammurabi? Uh, Hammurabi uh, and the, the, there's an ancient law code. Let's compare the biblical law code to that law code and see what the, see what's going on, right? You know, laws of slavery, by the way. You know, the Bible talks about slaves. On how do we we have to compare it to this ancient law. All right. What about the New Testament world was called, uh, the, the, the historical background is called the Greco-Roman, right? We just usually abbreviate it as GR. So in the New Testament, we compare it to the Greco-Roman culture. What does Paul say about women, for example, in comparison to the Greco-Roman culture? Make sense? All right. Questions? Comments? Got an idea what genre is? Style of writing? Okay, let's name some genres in the Bible without looking at your notes. Poetry. Very good. Prophecy. Historical. Apocalyptic. Epistle. Letters. Yep, letters. All right. Narrative, okay, which can which can cross genres, right? Narrative is within historical genres. All right. We've actually forgot one. Well, Eschatological, no, that's, that's not a genre, actually. Apocalyptic would be kind of the, the genre. All right, that, that goes there. We've skipped two, actually. The gospel. Because we naturally assume that gospels fit into either history, or that maybe we'll classify them as biographies, and they're neither. Right? At least by our standards of biographies, right? Um, they fit more into an ancient background of an ancient, what's called an ancient bios, which is similar to a biography. Um, but how many biographies start off with a birth and skip immediately to the, you know, to the time the guy's 30 years old? Right? It doesn't. You know, usually you tell. Story of how we got to be 30 years old. All right. Uh, uh, law. Yeah, law. So there's another one also. So, all right. So now we have to figure out what are these genres? What are the rules of these genres? How does it work? Uh, things like that. Very well. Okay, let's go to history now. Okay, history. All right. Redemptive history. The biblical category of history I would call redemptive history. And we mentioned this before, but. It's the story of God's covenantal activity in which God has written the plot. All right, let, me, let me just define these words here and make sure we're okay. All right. The Bible is, the historical books of the Bible are actually not telling us history. They're not a true history text, it's redemptive history. What does that mean? What's the difference between those two things? Not, 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 it's not just telling us history, it's telling us redemptive history. It's, it's about how God's bringing his people back from being kicked out of the garden to back into the garden. All right? it's, it's a story of God's activity of redeeming creation. Okay? It's not a history book in the sense that I'm going to give you the history of the United States. And if it's history of the United States, what are we going to tell you? All the things pertinent, at least in my opinion, to the history of the United States. If I'm telling you the history of Europe in the 1800s, I'm going to tell you all the things that I think are pertinent to the history of Europe in the 1800s. Redemptive history is, I'm only going to tell you history as is pertinent to God's, the story of God redeeming creation. So Abraham has two sons, but we only follow one of them, Isaac. Isaac has two sons, but we only follow one of them, Jacob. Right? So it's not telling us the whole story of Abraham's family. It's only telling us one thread of Abraham's family. Right? All the way up until, of course, the Christ. Does that make sense? This is redemptive history. All right, Covenantal it's just, you know, it just basically means it's an agreement between two parties. That's what a covenant is. Right? An agreement between two parties, similar to what we might call a treaty, but a treaty is usually an agreement between two equals. Right? Maybe one might be bigger than the other, but I still don't want to go to war with you any longer, so we'll sign a treaty. Right? A covenant is usually a king and his people. Right? And the basis of a covenant is I'll be your king, and you'll be my subjects. I'll make the laws, and you'll follow them. If you follow them, I will bless you. If you don't follow them, I will curse you. Okay? So God goes into covenant with Abraham. God goes into covenant with his people. So it's the story of God's, the history of God's redeeming his people in covenant with Abraham, with his family, in which God's written the plot. All right. All theological history has three purposes. Um, uh, I'm not going to go into 1 Corinthians 10 because we're going to do it tonight if you're in the 1 Corinthians class. Uh, we'll talk about this passage, but here are three points. Number one, to show God's activity with his people in the past. Okay? To show God's history with his people in the past. Okay? Uh, secondly, to show that the past has established an identity for his people. To show that, the, and tell me if I'm going too quickly or if something doesn't make sense here, right? Okay, to show how the past, how God has established an identity for his people. Yeah. Okay, very good. Um, So add the word God. Yes. Uh, Redemptive is a particular story focusing on how God's going to redeem his people, or redeem his creation, including his people. All right. Theological means that it has to do with the work of God, or it has some kind of theological agenda to it. All right. Now, people will criticize the Bible and say, the Bible isn't history because it's theological. Okay, um, the answer is that doesn't make it false. Of course, it has a theological objective. If we believe that God's involved, that doesn't mean that He's not involved. Just because it's a theological bias. All right? The reality is this: all history is biased. It's impossible to write anything from an unbiased perspective, because what's going to happen is this: if I'm going to write the history of the United States. Number one, I can't say everything that's ever happened. It's impractical. I'd spend my entire life writing about one day. And even then, I still wouldn't get it. Right? All right. So, all historians now have to decide what's important, what's not important. Right? What am I going to tell you about? What am I not going to tell you about? Um, The Gospel of John says that Jesus did many more things than these. I suppose that... Even all the books of the world wouldn't be able to account for all of them. Which asks the question of, okay, then, John, why did you only tell us these ones? Why did you leave that one out and include this one? Uh, So all historians have to do that. I have to decide, if I'm going to write the history of the United States, what I think are the important facts that you should know about. Fair enough? Um, Now, just because I'm doing it with a a bias that says I think God's been, been involved in this, doesn't mean I'm wrong any more than the person who writes history and says God's not involved in this. is necessarily wrong. Now, by the way, both of those have theological biases. I think God's involved. Let me tell the story this way. I think God's not involved. Let me tell the story that way. Those are both theological positions. One that says God doesn't exist, one says he does exist. Make sense? All right. So maybe a better word is philosophical. We all have a philosophical assumptions. My assumptions are that God does exist. Your philosophical assumptions are that God doesn't exist. Is that clear? Yeah? Okay. So here we go. Uh, Number three, to demand a response. God's people should obey and trust God. Deuteronomy, uh, uh, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Uh, The reason for stating that is that therefore you ought to obey me. Right? I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And if you know what I did with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, then you know the types of things I'm going to do now. Right? Right? I am the Lord. God demands a response from his people. Okay. Right. Now, what, are na- what narratives are not? Right. I'm using the word narratives here about history books. Now, how many of you guys have read the Old Testament stories and kind of gone, I don't know how I'm going to deal with that one. I don't like that story. Right? Jephthah. Okay, God, whatever comes out of my house, that's the first thing I'm to sacrifice to you. His daughter runs out. What does he do? Sacrifices her. Anybody here comfortable with that story? All right. Some of the war stories in Joshua. Ah, I don't know about that one. All right, some of the law codes. The beautiful dame that you capture as booty, you can marry if you want, but if you don't want to marry her, you have to send her away, but you can't make her a slave. You you can't sell her. Really? I don't like this. And these are common arguments that the skeptics and the non-Christians make the Bible, look, the Bible can't be reliable because look at what your God is like. Right? Your God does these things, slaughters innocent people, tells your people to do all these things. Right? All right, here we go. Uh, the Bible is not. Number one, it's not just a bunch of stories about people who lived a long time ago. There are stories about God and his redemptive character. Right? And maybe what I would add there is God's grace. God's redemptive character is one full of grace. Adam and Eve, if you do this, you will die. They did it. What did God say? I'm going to kick you out of the garden. I'm going to give you grace. You don't deserve this. You deserve to die now. But they didn't die now. They did die. But he gave them grace. Cain kills Abel. What happens? All right, here's the deal. I'm going to mark you, send you off. I'm going to show sympathy for you. I'm going to let everybody know not 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 to do anything to you. No, I'll take retribution on you. I won't let the people take retribution on you. You go live somewhere else. Grace. You know what? This world is so bad, I'm going to wipe it out with a flood. All right, Noah, you know, I'm going to say, I'll save you and your family. It's grace. It's grace. It's grace. Uh, no. Okay, I, I would add to that. Okay, the, I, what I would tell the skeptic who says, look at what your God's like are points two and three. Right? Point two. They are not usually designed to teach directly, but only illustrate what is taught explicitly elsewhere. Okay? They, they illustrate things. All right? they, don't, they don't intend to teach directly. And usually what they illustrate is, if you do these kind of things, you'll be blessed. If you do those kind of things, you'll be cursed. Right? That's, that's the morals, right? Now, read the stories in light of that. They did those kind of things, and what happened? They got cursed. God's not telling you that story because he's sponsoring that story. He's approving of that story, or or if that's a good thing. The story is stating what happened. The question now becomes, what happens to these people in light of this? Jacob is the best example, is, is an easy example, right? Jacob is told... The Bible clearly says, Jacob's going to get the birthright, isn't he? But how does he get the birthright? He lies. He deceives his father. Now, in Sunday school classes, we're told, this is how God chose to get the birthright to Jacob. I don't think so. God's not going to sponsor lying and deception but the Bible says that Jacob was going to get the birthright and he got it, therefore God must have blessed him in doing that no, keep reading right, what happens number one, he is a fugitive for the rest of his life if you disobey the law, I'm going to kick you out of the land that's the law, isn't it Jacob doesn't live in the land, he's, in a, he's a fugitive right then he finds out that his brother's on his way to visit him, what happens he wets his pants. I mean, he's like, uh, this ain't, uh, right? My brother's going to... He lives his life in fear of reprisal from his brother. What happens when he goes to his uncle's house? Oh, yeah, you can marry one of my daughters. <laughs> Oops, wrong one. Bummer for you. Work seven more years. His uncle lied to him. His uncle deceived him. In other words, the story tells you he got what he deserved, but he also got grace. God did bless him. But he lived his life in fear, as a refuge. Right? Worried about reprisals from his brother. Being deceived by his uncle, and being taken for advantage of. All the things that he did to his father. What does the law say? An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Right? What you, what you sow, so shall, shall ye reap. Right. So there you go. The Bible is illustrating... It's not teaching that that was a good thing. In fact, if you keep reading it carefully, it's illustrating what's taught explicitly elsewhere, and that is, if you do this, this is often what's going to happen to you. If you don't obey the law, going kick you out of the land, etc., etc. Make sense? All right. So don't read the stories as though, oh, God's approving of these things. The, the reality of the story is, God's blessing these people despite this. God's being faithful to his promises, even though they did these things. Romans 5.8, While we were... Yet sinners, Christ died for us. These aren't heroes acting like heroes. Now Joseph is. Joseph is. You ever notice the Genesis story? Fifty chapters in Genesis. Fourteen of them are about Joseph. Ah, Genesis is about Joseph. Right? He's the one who does good. And what happens? He's blessed. And he blesses his family. Even though his brother sinned and he got kicked out of the land, right, he still gets blessed by God. Even though he's in exile, even though he's out of the land, he's the one that's blessed, not his brother. So, he even blesses Egypt as a result of it, that's right, which is blessing the nations, which is ultimately the the promise of Genesis 12, I'll bless all nations through you. Exactly, and ultimately he redeems Israel through that, through Joseph, right? Okay, here we go, number three. Morals are not always to be taken from individual narratives. In fact, they're usually not. These people are not exemplars of how the people of God are to obey, all right? And one of the examples that, that I may give you here in a few weeks, the beginning of class lessons that we'll give, is David. David, all right? For most of us, David's a hero. And everything that David does is good. He even takes care of Saul's lone offspring. Mephibosheth, whatever, however you say the guy's name. All right, right. All right. Does he take care of them? Or does David, as the new dictator in power, keep his eye on the only progeny of Saul to make sure he doesn't ever get power and overthrow me? Ah, David's not clean on these ones here. Okay, and we'll look at this. Um, okay, here we go. Principles for interpreting narratives. All right, number one, narratives record what happened, not what should have happened. The Old Testament characters are far from perfect, therefore what happens in narratives is not necessarily a good example for us. In fact, most of the time it's not um, at, at all a good example for us, okay? Secondly, all narratives are selective and incomplete. that makes sense, right? In other words, they chose to tell you this story, but not that one. It's selective. Right? And, it's, and therefore, it's, it's incomplete. Okay? Narratives are not written to answer all of our theological questions. Right? Uh, in fact, they usually don't teach theology. They usually illustrate what happens when you don't obey or when you do obey. All right? uh, number four, God is the hero of all biblical narratives. Right? Ultimately, and of course, it's God is the hero despite the people. God blessed Jacob not because he lied. God blessed Jacob despite his lie. Does that make sense? All right. And then all biblical narratives point at least indirectly to Christ. Right. If you just look at the parallels between Joseph and Jesus, you'll see ah, Joseph is a forecasting of Jesus, foretelling of Jesus. Joshua is the foretelling of Jesus, also. Jesus's name, by the way, in Hebrew is Joshua. Right? And what does Joshua do? He leads him into the Promised Land. What does Jesus do? He leads us into the Promised Land. Right? So there are these there, there are these parallels uh, between the, the narratives there also. Now, the other thing to, to bear in mind that would be you know, literally like hundreds of hours of studying all, you know uh, all by itself would be that. Their way of writing history was not the same as our way of writing history. They just didn't do that. Um, preciseness in quotations was like, who cares? This is what the guy said. Right? I mean, if you've ever read, you probably haven't, uh, Thucydides, who's a famous Greek historian of, I think, the 3rd or 4th century B.C. Okay? And he's telling you these, these, these stories. Well, he's, there are four pages of direct quotation from generals in a war in a war room with their council. I doubt Thucydides was there. I doubt he took notes. I doubt that anybody who was in that war room listening to the general talk about the military strategy recorded what the general said. How did Thucydides know? Answer: He just watched what played out in history and then went back and put that in the mouth of the general. But nobody Criticizes that. That's okay. We, we get that. We understand what's happening. All right. So the same thing. Um, one thing that's interesting is chronological order. Chronological order was not central to them. The stories can take place out of order. All right? uh, I'm, I'm, this is off the top of my head here. Uh, I've got a few other things to say, but yeah, here you go. First uh, Samuel 16. Uh, we're introduced to David, right? Uh, And Samuel goes to Bethlehem, 1 Samuel 16. David is anointed. And we hear all these great things about David. Okay, chapter 17 is the story of Goliath. 1 Samuel 17, story of Goliath. In verse 14, David is introduced to us as though we've never heard of him. 1 Samuel 17 introduces David, verse 14. David was the youngest, we already know that, because the previous chapter told us that. Which suggests that 1 Samuel 16 happened after 1 Samuel 17. Right? And somehow, the story got arranged in this order. Now, why would the story be arranged in this order? Because of theological agendas. I don't know, or literary agendas. I, I want you to know this, so I'm going to tell you these stories that illustrate that. Now I want you to know this, so I'm going to tell you these stories that illustrate that. And the Gospels are probably the best examples of that. Um, also, okay. Uh, very briefly here, um, and we want to stop. Um, uh, all right, I'll have, I'll, I'll finish that up next time. I'll finish that up next time. All right. Any questions, comments? Yeah, I don't see a conflict there. So help me see where the conflict is. I I, I think I get where you're going, but I want you to, ver- to verbalize the point. Oh oh no, it's not the faith that. Oh, all right, I, I see what you're saying. All right. So if God knows what's going to happen in advance then did these people actually play out as true characters who had choices to do otherwise? Right. And the answer is, um, that's a question that the biblical writers would have said, I don't understand what you're trying to say. And the reason why is, because for them it's a both-and. In the biblical world, it's clearly the case that God has absolute sovereign control of all things. Yet at the same time, these characters clearly have free will. For us, as the Western rationalist mind, those two seem irreconcilable. We can't reconcile the two. I mean, it's one or the other. It's an either or. Yet, and that's the that's Western modern mindset that I would say doesn't complete, com- completely comprehend the majesty of God. Who's, words, I think the answer is caught up somewhere in the transcendence of God. That somehow in God's transcendent ways, he knows everything, causes everything, and is the source for everything. Yet, at the same time, in the temporal world in which we dwell, well, there really is true freedom, and I don't. So Isaiah 58, my ways are not your ways, and your ways are not my ways, saith the Lord. That's where the answer is, and I'm content with that answer. I have no problem with that, but I think a, a lot of us have, have troubles with that. Very well. All right. Hey, what, what we what we talked about doing here, and, we'll, and we're going to close now with, with some prayer, uh, is uh, giving you guys an opportunity to take communion, and we've got um, a communion up here just to, just to close as a celebration of the birth of Christ, um, and the idea being, you know, as I prayed at the beginning of class was, um, for some of us, the holidays are really difficult. And family issues, and family problems, and family crisis, um, and conflicts, and uh, dealing with those things. For others, it's difficult because we've lost people or are losing people, and and we're we're struggling with that. Um, And for others of us, it's a joyous time. We're family together, and we can thank God for all that. Uh, And I think it's just important that we sometimes stop and say, okay, Lord, I want... To uh, be sanctified uh, in Christ, uh, you know. I believe that communion is a commun- communal meal, uh, but I'm going to respect the fact that some of you come from a Catholic tradition where maybe you're not going to be welcome to take communion unless a priest has blessed it. I have no problem with that. Some of you come from other traditions where you know, uh, Anglican, even uh, you know, the priest didn't bless it. I'm not going to take it, or I'm not comfortable here. So I don't want to pass it out. kind of, I think when Protestants pass it out, it's that obligatory we all have to partake type of thing. I don't want to. That or assume that. So let's just close prayer a couple minutes early. Uh, pray, set your own heart set right, and then just give yourselves the moment, the opportunity if you want to come up, take some King's Hawaiian bread. All the reason to eat communion because when we do communion here, we do it right. All right, <laughs> not those wafers that stick in your teeth, folks. All right, I don't do that stuff. All right, here we go. Um, and uh, uh, there's some. Uh, 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 I think it's uh, grape juice, whatever it is. though, Right. All right. So let me let me pray a prayer of blessing, uh, and then uh, feel free to take communion on your own if you'd like to. Uh, Lord, we, we, we give you praise because we are overwhelmed by you know, even the question that Anthony was asking. We don't get this. We don't understand this. Um, there's so much, especially in the Old Testament stories, that we don't understand. It doesn't seem right. Um, yet we, we trust, especially in light of Christ. There's so many reasons to trust um, and to accept and to understand. And help us to unpack these things as we proceed in this class but help us to see Christ, the grace of God. Help us not to stand here and looking at Jacob and 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 to be arrogant over him, but to recognize that so often, Lord, we hear your voice and we take matters into our own hands also. And instead of letting you accomplish your will, we, we just take your will into our own hands. Um, and unfortunately, we reap the consequences of that, Lord, and... But we thank you that there's grace. There's always grace. And your grace is indeed sufficient for all of us. So we thank you for this Christmas season. We pray, Lord, more than anything, that we would be the light to the world. We would be light to our family members who are struggling, who are hurting, who are mourning and grieving. That we would be the light to our family members who are lost, who walk in darkness, and the anger and the bitterness and the resentment that they have Because they don't know grace. They don't understand what the light of Christ is all about. So help us, Lord, to to reconcile our relationship with them. As far as it is possible with us, to be at peace with all men. That we might be the light under the nations. this holiday season. Help us also, Lord, to to, to rejoice with our families, with our friends. Uh, Give us safety as we travel. Just watch over us and bless us So that as we take this bread, we will remember the body of Christ that is broken for us. As we drink this wine and grape juice, we will also remember the blood of Christ that was spilled for us. But Lord, help us also to partake of this bread and to drink of this cup in remembrance of the banquet that is in store for us. The great heavenly feast, the marriage supper of the Lamb that we're all invited to if we repent we repent, we can come into the banquet. You're throwing on behalf of us. For we too are the older brothers who are in need of repentance. We too are the younger brothers who have spurned our father and rejected him and gone off to a distant country. No matter where we are. We're being invited back to the banquet. So we ask and pray Lord that you would bless this day and this night in our lives as we go out the next few weeks. Thank you in Jesus' Amen. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you would like more information on the Determined Truth podcast, you can find us on iTunes. You can follow Rob's blog at DeterminedTruth.com or purchase his books on Amazon.com. See you next time.